Welcome all of our listeners at WFHB to another episode of Big Talk. I'm Alex Ashkin, your guest host today, joined by the brilliant, the outspoken, the community activist and academic Amrita Chakrabadi Myers, author of Forging Freedom, Black Women in the Pursuit of Liberty in Antebellum Charleston. How are you doing today, Professor Myers? Well, Alex, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I still remember you when you were my student many moons ago. I won't say how many because the gray hair is really showing on me. The last four years uh, have definitely grayed me out um, in the last year in particular. But it's a beautiful sunny day and I'm, uh, I'm really pleased to be here. Just before we kind of dive totally into this, you are a associate professor of history at Indiana University, and you've been particularly focusing on the narratives of African-American women who particularly sought and acquired their own manumission. Well, I'm, so I'm a professor, associate professor of history and gender studies. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. I have appointments in both departments, and I also have affiliations in African-American and African diaspora studies and American studies. And yeah, I'm a, I specialize in Black women's history during the era of slavery. And most of my work, um, well, really all of my work has focused on, you know, looking at the, the lives and stories of enslaved and free Black women who have really been overlooked, ignored, neglected, uh, their stories just haven't been uh, brought to the center of the the American narrative. Mm-hmm. They've really been, um, you know, pushed. They've just, you know, I sort of it's excavation work. I sort of consider myself a historical private detective. Um, mm-hmm. I find these um, these women's uh, stories and I sort of unearth them and I bring them front and center um, of the Southern story and and the American story, so that we. We can uh, get to know who they are. They're, you know, regular, average, everyday people like us. But um, that's 90% of the American population. Um, they they help to build this country and make it what it is. And I think it's really important that we get to know their lives, their voices, their stories. One of the things that I always find so interesting in these stories is they really help shed a light on some of these sort of structural, institutional practices that really were used to uh, sort of oppress people of color and women of color, particularly. One of the things I've found so fascinating, you open up your book with a story about a woman named Catherine who had been uh, sold between multiple slave owners, and there was an agreement that she might be able to buy her own manumission, which resulted in sort of this legal issue uh, once her then slave master had died and there was a question of was there a legal agreement if she was able to legally receive manumission, purchase her own freedom. These sort of stories are really fascinating to me and the first thing I thought of when I read that is sort of, I think Frederick Douglass at one point wrote about a concept 
that was referred to as uh, Negro testimonials. The idea that particularly in that time that enslaved people couldn't really uh, legally stand to give their own statements, particularly when compared to white landowning males. Is there a particular reason why you want to highlight that story first within your book, perhaps as like an illustrative point, or was there something that really stuck out about her story that made you want to put as part of your introduction to the whole idea? Uh, thanks, Alex. I appreciate the question. Well, my book, as you said, is called Forging Freedom, Black Women and the Pursuit of Liberty in Antebellum Charleston. Um, and the story of Catherine, I thought was important to begin with because people always ask me, well, in fact, to this day, every time I talk about that particular book or teach it in the classroom, students are always amazed. They say there were free Blacks in the South, there were free Black women in the South, because most people still think that free Blacks only lived in the North, mm -hmm. right? There's still this, um, under, there's still this mythology that the North was free and the South was slave, right? Mm -hmm. And that there were no free Blacks in the South. And so that is something that, that's a myth that we, that I have to sort of overcome in the first place. And in fact, in the 19th century, the free Black population in the United States was split almost entire, almost 50-50 between mm -hmm. the North and the South, first of all. But beyond that, um, so because the book is about free Black women, the second question people have is, well, how did Black women acquire their freedom in the first place? And I said, well, in many ways, there wasn't just one path to freedom, there were many paths to freedom. But then there's this assumption that people were just given their freedom, that people, that it was something that they just acquired, that, well, that white slave owners were just these benevolent, paternalistic people who just kind of doled out freedom like candy at Christmas. Mm -hmm. And this story is really important because it shows that Black women, which I try to do throughout my book, were active agents in acquiring their freedom, that they had to fight for it, that they had to work for it, that they earned it, that no one gave them anything, right? That they were, at, that they were agents who had to negotiate, fight, seek, right? Um, and earn that freedom, right? It should have just been given to them with, at birth, right? That it should be, right? That this is a human right, right? But instead, Catherine, had to raise money. She had to, first of all, in, in, engage in a contract mm -hmm. with her owner, Dr. Plumo. And then when she died, right, people tried to, you know, renege on that contract and say that she didn't have the right to actually engage in that contract and they tried to actually block the contract say that it wasn't legal that she hadn't she had engaged in this contract turned over all this money she had worked for years to acquire her manumission and then people tried to illegally take that away from her and so this one case shows everything that the book is about it shows how black how hard black women worked how they had to work within a system that was stacked against them, how they had to work with the very people, white men in particular, who never really wanted them to acquire their freedom in the first place, and how then, even after they went over all these obstacles and hurdles, 
white people still tried to turn around and con them and take their freedom away from them. Mm -hmm. So it shows all the structural obstacles and institutional I mean, methods of racism that the, you know, how the system was set up to sort of defeat them at every turn and how savvy and smart black women were, right? They were never just waiting around for someone to give them a handout. They knew the system, they knew the ins and outs of the system, they knew the legalities of the system, and they had to go up against all the powers that be that were, all the forces that were arrayed against them. This one tiny case opens up every single thing that I'm gonna talk about in the book, and it also shows us exactly how these things are still being manipulated and used today. It's interesting that you say that because it, there really is this sort of fascinating parallel here where you kind of first alluded to is like there's sort of a mythology behind the ideas of slavery and racism and sort of the institutional structures that sort of protected that. There has been a little bit of historical revisionism in the past that has sort of continually want to say, oh, you know, the, the more accepting abolitionist liberal North was sort of this force of good, where in reality, it was still very much a bit of an economic and political decision. And I think people still sort of hang on to that today, where they have this uh, mythology that continues on even to discussions like Juneteenth. Uh, I find it fascinating that one, so very few people know about it. And two, even in 2020, you were invited on to Fox and Friends, I believe, to kind of explain like, what is Juneteenth? Why is this important? Why is it important to the American identity? And why should it be more than just sort of an African American cultural holiday? Why should it be a, a national holiday? And I, I, I found your uh, short discussion with uh, I, Steve Ducey, I believe, uh, really fascinating because he kind of said like, oh, you know, corporations and, you know, certain bodies are starting to sort of recognize this. Is that, you know, kind of enough? Where do you want to see it go? The national protests that raged across the country last year, Alex, um, in the wake of the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and, and others. Of course, um, those were just the latest outrages. Um, you know, they're not new, right? Mm -hmm. They're the latest in uh, the murders of Black people that have been going on for centuries, unfortunately, but they sparked a new revolution in terms of uprisings and protests across the nation as white folks, um, Asian folks, Latinx folks joined with Black people all over the country to protest police brutality. And it also led to a much larger recognition of Juneteenth um, than we've ever seen before in the United States. And you had corporations like Nike and Target and others making this a corporate paid holiday. And all of a sudden, I was approached by Fox of all networks. Talk about this, not just locally on Fox 59, but national, as you said. And, and what I said then, and I, and I still maintain, I think it's a start. Um, and it's very nice that they want to make it a corporate paid holiday. But I think we need to actually go much, uh, far, far beyond that. 
it, it sort of reminds me of MLK Day and how it's been co-opted in so many ways <laughs> with all sorts of people posting fluffy MLK quotes on their social media when they know absolutely nothing about the true and whole Martin Luther King Jr., mm -hmm. particularly his evolution in the last years of his life and his campaign, his anti-poverty campaign and his work to unionize and mobilize sanitation workers in Memphis. And the fact that Dr. King was the one, really one of the most hated men in the United States um, when he was assassinated, mm -hmm. which is why he was assassinated, if I might add, right? People who are yep. loved are not assassinated. They know as little about Dr. King as they do about Malcolm X, um, mm -hmm. if I might say, right? They, and, and this is what it is about Juneteenth. I mean, people don't know that Juneteenth is a celebration of the actual real end of the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation when the news of the end of the war and the Emancipation Proclamation was brought to enslaved, formerly enslaved people um, in Texas. But I think that we have to go beyond just giving people a day off because of Juneteenth. We need, I said, are, are these corporations going to, and is the nation going to then take this opportunity to look at corporate structures and say, hmm, let's discuss justice, liberation, and freedom. How many people of color, how many African Americans are in positions of serious power at corporate headquarters in places like Nike and Target? How many people do we have in management, right, yeah. who are people of color and who are African Americans? What do our benefits look like? What does our pay structure look like? What do our maternity leave benefits look like? I mean, giving people a day off with pay is really not terribly useful if you don't look at the structures of your corporation that are continuing to actually for, you know, you know, further racialized and racist policies that hurt your employees on a daily basis. So if you're not giving your employees health insurance, if you're continuing to hire, hire people part-time and therefore prevent them from getting benefits, right? If you don't have black and brown people in positions of power at management and in your, in your corporate head office, giving somebody a day off for Juneteenth is window dressing. That It's what I call like putting like a ribbon on a rotting corpse. That's yeah. my phrase. And I just don't see it as being terribly useful. It's one of those interesting things where I find it so fascinating, particularly with, you know, this week, this Monday being Martin Luther King Day, we kind of, <laughs> for, I don't want to say forget or for ill, because frankly, I don't know how much good comes about this sort of whitewashing, but it's like, as a white male, if I, if it wasn't for sort of taking classes like yours and doing independent research, reading the Coretta, Coretta Scott King biography of her husband and so on, it would be really hard to sort of put things into perspective. I think a lot of times at the end of the day, you know, as a Hoosier, I would associate Martin Luther King Day with, well, the NBA has a lot of games on. And I don't mean to be glib, but it's like, I, I think that's the problem a lot of people have is they don't have that real discussion. 
even to this day, I think there's a lot of resistance to sort of these black leaders who are trying to draw attention to this sort of stuff. Dr. William Barber's, uh, your Raphael Warnock's, you know, I'm, I'm ecstatic that he was able to get elected. And I think it's almost shocking that, you know, people talk about this fantastic orator and community leader as, you know, a communist or something else. And it's just like, you do realize that this is almost the exact same language they were using against Dr. King 60 years ago. Well, and it's not surprising, right? I mean, he's an incredibly educated, articulate black man who happens to be uh, standing behind the pulpit of Dr. King's church. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's just not even... The, the I mean, symbolism is palpable. <laughs> it, it really, really is. When I was living in Atlanta, I actually attended um, Dr. Warnock's church, mm. uh, which is Dr. King's church. And, you know, he's... I was delighted that he was running for that Senate seat. And, you know, I certainly financially supported his race and did what I could from, from here in Indiana to support him and, and John Ossoff's races from here. But it, it wasn't surprising to me, but that's why I said that, you know, people, people are, you know, white, white liberalism, I find extremely disturbing on a whole host of levels because posting fluffy quotes about King and I have a dream and, you know, how, you know, hate can't drive out hate, only love can, and the light and the darkness. I'm like, have you ever actually truly read anything that Dr. King wrote? Have you actually bothered to read his right letter that he wrote from the Birmingham jail? Have you actually ever, do you know anything beyond that one line from his I Have a Dream speech? Like, have you read the entire speech? Have you contextual, I mean, and anything can be taken out of context, right? Mm -hmm. Historians know that you must look at everything in someone's life, right? You can't just pull bits and pieces out. That's what, I mean, members of the Ku Klux Klan claim to be Christians because they cherry pick verses out of the Bible, for goodness sakes, mm -hmm. right? I mean, there were plenty of people who claimed to be Christians who were slave owners, right? You must, must, must be able to contextualize. You must look at the whole king. Absolutely. It's sort of interesting that you refer to as like this fluff and sort of white, like white liberalism. At a certain point, the desire to not rock the boat ends up creating this sort of almost inverse racism. We in Bloomington had a big incident throughout 2018 and 2019 regarding Schooner Creek Farms and the Bloomington City Farmers Market. You know, there was a big backlash after some investigatory reporting linked Schooner Creek Farms to Identity Europa, Europa which is now, I believe, the your or uh, white identity or American identity movement, I believe, and, which is sort of a neo-white identitarian white supremacist organization, and public outrage, public outcry, really said like we don't want them in our community. We don't want them here as a vendor representing the businesses and the people of Southern Indiana. And the city sort of says, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. We can't, you guys can say that, we can't, you know, we have to protect their First Amendment rights. 
And it creates this sort of moment of speaking out of both sides of their mouth. We have a commitment to diversity, inclusion, and so on, yet we also have to accept people who are ideologically and functionally in total opposition of that. So first of all, I think the question is, how do we engage people who kind of want to be a good ally, but also have this like bizarre pull to say, I don't want to upset people? Because I think that's a tough thing, particularly as, you know, people who kind of don't view it as having skin in the game, in a sense. I think part of the problem here is like, let me just sort of back up a little bit, is that people, people need to first engage in self-reflection because one of the things that I talk about a lot in the, increasingly I've been doing, you know, not just lectures, but workshops on anti-Blackness, anti-racism work. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, that I tell people is that when you know, doing this kind of work against white supremacy um, and anti-bias training, um, these sorts of things, it's not a one and done deal, right? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is lifetime work. Right, and becoming an anti-racist is, um, and as my uh, colleague and and friend Jada B will tell you, it's a journey. It's 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 not a destination. You will be working on undoing these things in yourself over the entire course of your life, but you must begin the journey. And I think that the problem is, is that we live in a community, especially here in Bloomington, where we are surrounded by white liberals who do not wish to begin the journey. They already think that they are anti-racists, you see. They think that they are, they, they, they believe that we live in this beautiful blue bubble. Mm-hmm. They, It's not just that they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to engage in the act of self-reflection. They don't want to look in the mirror. They don't want to look in themselves. And they don't want to begin the work of unpacking all of the hidden biases, unconscious biases, and the ugliness of white supremacy that exists in themselves. The thing is, is that white supremacy exists in all of us by virtue of the fact that we were raised, born, raised, moved here, lived in this nation, because this is a settler colonial nation. This is a racist society. It's a white supremacist society by virtue of its history and its culture. It's in the air that we breathe. It's been taught to us from birth and even those who moved here have ingested it from media, from film, from TV, from news sources, from the educational system, K through 12 and beyond, from friends, from family, from the toys on the shelf, from the books that we read. Every single facet of American culture and society, silently and not so silently, has has taught us white supremacy Mm -hmm. and it's been done so subtly for the most part 
that by the time people are 18 years old, they're carrying pounds and pounds and pounds of, you know, unconscious ideas about black and brown and, you know, about all kinds of people and genders that they are absolutely unaware of. And so you will talk to people who will swear up and down that they are not racist, not sexist, not homophobic, not ageist, not, you know, whatever. And yet they have all of these ideas buried within them. And then when you begin to poke them, when you begin to actually say to them, yes, you do, you, you know, and force them to begin to peel back the layers of the onion, they are so uncomfortable, They're, they feel so threatened, they become so defensive. It's not, Alex, that they don't want to rock the boat. It's because they don't want to peel back their own layers of the onion within them that scares them. And they, it, like I said, they become defensive, they become angry, they become hostile. You can talk all you want to about Schooner Creek Farms and the city's refusal to do a very simple thing disengage from their contract, make, allow the, the, the market to become farmer-led, privatized, if you want to use that word, which is how the farmer's market in Nashville, little Nashville, was able to get rid of Schooner Creek within 48 to 72 hours and remove Sarah Dye as the president of their farmer's market association, right? Mm -hmm. They were able to do this very easily. And here we are in this, you know, still dealing with this situation because the city simply refused to do a very simple thing and allow the market to become led by the farmers themselves where they could have drafted therefore a private set of code of conduct rules, which would have allowed them to get rid of Sarah Dye, who does not even belong to our community. And instead the city has made this a much larger, uglier, more contentious situation. But if you take the city out of the situation, look at how citizens have come at each other, have conflicted with one another, the ugliness that this has brought out. But what it has shown us is that we, black people, brown people, white people, Asian people, gay, straight, Catholic, Jewish, we all are struggling with these issues and most people don't wanna deal with them because it means that we have to face the fact that by virtue of being here, so many of us have ingested the ugliness of white supremacy and and we don't want to face that. Hi, Michael Glab here, producer and host of Big Talk. Alex Ashkin's conversation with Amrita Chakrabadi Myers continued far beyond the 28 minute constraint of our weekly program. So we'll air the conclusion of the interview tomorrow, Friday, February 5th, 2021, at 11.30 a.m. right here on WFHB 91.3 FM. As always, our editions are archived as podcasts, so if you miss any particular episode or simply want to re-listen to any of them, go to wfhb.org pull down the programs menu, and select Big Talk. Scroll down that list and pick your conversation. Big Talk, where Bloomington folks meet and get to know one another.